0: Ezra chapter three, verses 10 through 13. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with their symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, For his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. And though many shout aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Go ahead and find it if you haven't yet. Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. While you're turning there. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we we do have an everlasting foundation, a firm foundation. The foundation whose cornerstone is nothing less than your eternal son. And all of this richness is given to us through the movement of your spirit, working through your word, God. So we humbly come before you and place ourselves under your word and ask that you would fashion us into a pure temple where you can dwell amongst your people. This has been the longing cry of your people throughout all of history. So we just ask that you would come and make that happen right now. Through all of your people. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. You have the feeling that something is moving above you. It's because it is. Have you ever kissed the ground? This summer, we we took a, a trip as a family. We had About a week and a half, we went out in the black pearl, as many of you know. And we had... Tons and tons of miles and 50-some hours in the car of kids... Doing what kids do and screaming and and fussing for food and this and that, but you you begin to actually enjoy it a little bit in some kind of weird way. And you're, you're living in hotel rooms. You had a conference. you were traveling. So living in hotel rooms for a while, and then we go move into Grandpa's basement for a couple days and go, hey, surprise! Here's you know more people that have ever been in your house are now coming in to invade your quiet life. And then on our long journey home we're we're doing it. We're making it. We're coming home. We crossed the Jordan. Now we're out of Iowa, thank God. And we're 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 into the promised land of Minnesota and somehow while we we're in Iowa at the last gas station we're doing so great. What if the kid loses a shoe at a gas station? You go, How did you lose your shoe? I don't know. Like No, it was on your foot. You got into the car with one shoe on. Yes. But we're, it's fine. We're coming. Then you, then you start, you're head north and you go through Spring Valley and everything starts looking a little more familiar. And then the excitement level rises as everything then becomes familiar. You know the trees, you know the, the houses and everything like that. And finally you've made it. You put the black pearl in the park. And the kids get out, <laughs> they jump out, and they kiss the ground <laughs> in, in jubilation. Why? Because it's good to be home. It is good to be home. Now imagine that you're not just traveling for 14 days or 7 days, you're not just cruising along in the black pearl, but imagine it's 70 years And you come back and not everything is familiar, but actually it's desolate. But through the goodness of God, you begin to rebuild. Because finally, you are home. And you love it. So what are we going to be focusing in on through Ezra and Nehemiah as we were kind of praying through it this week? Just really focus in on verse 11. God's goodness. To bring them home. So you're going to see the main idea. What I'm hoping that you will leave here with. Knowing that the steadfast love of God endures forever towards His people. So what are we going to see here? Well, on verse 11 you're going to see the goodness of God. We're just going to sit there and ponder that for a while. And then, also in verse eleven, you're going to see that his steadfast love endures forever. It's not waning. It doesn't rise. It's not. It's not higher and then lower, depending on what you do or how he's feeling. No, the steadfast love of God endures forever. Again, in verse eleven, then finally, not surprisingly, in verse eleven, we're going to see the affection of of the, the people of God, the object of his affection. That is. The people upon whom he lavishes all of this love. So I hope you leave here knowing that God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. We're going to be looking at the goodness God, the steadfast love of God and us, the people of God. What does it mean then for that to happen? All right. So what's happening here in our Bibles? We've made it quite some, quite some time here. We had About 1,500 years have passed. From the call of Abraham out of the land of Ur. To now where we are actually at. And the people of God, as you read through this. Are marred with little blips and glimmers of hope. Of their goodness and their godliness. And God working through them. But it's well, it's a reflection of us as well. It's just... Years and years and generations and decades of complete depravity lived out through the people. And so when we encounter this here, kind of what's been going on as through these different reigns of the kings is that, you see, internationally, they don't even trust God. What's the first thing they do? Well, they run off and Solomon makes a, um, a, a treaty with Egypt. Egypt of all people, the people who are the great enemies of God and all of his the wisdom that was given to Solomon is turned to not trust God but turn to make political alliances to expand his kingdom. so they begin trusting other nations in the international realm and so then this light that is the city on the hill well it's actually it's no brighter than the other nations around them. So you see they're, they're, they're completely fallen internationally, but not only that, but also nationally as well. They've plunged themselves into the godlessness of the enemies that are within their midst. The kings who they have longed for have done, they, they wanted these kings, right? So that they could be like the other nations. And that's exactly what they had. They had these kings lead them into destruction to go and to be like the other nations. David kills Uriah, right? And has multiple children with dead Uriah's wife. Again, Solomon uses the wisdom that was given to him by God not to rule judiciously, not only that, but to build alliances with the enemies of God. Rehoboam, his father... Solomon built this glorious temple. What does Rehoboam do? Well, he builds high places for pagan, pagan worship all throughout the land. And not only that, there's even male cult prostitutes throughout the land. Ahaz makes his son pass through the fire. That is, he dedicates their children to the pagan gods. When you think about the narrative of what's going on, this is astounding. That no, these are the hope of the Messiah is going to come through their children. That the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And what they're doing is actually sacrificing their own children in homage and worship of the serpent. It's a complete flip of the expectation of what God's people should be doing. Manasseh, also he makes his children pass through fire. And there's a point... Of which the Israelites, when they were, it says, they were seduced to more evil than all of the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before Israel. Now they're even worse than the other nations whom God had killed and slaughtered. See, I want you to, I'm going to put a ban on them. I want you to kill everybody, even the children. Now God saying, His people are even seduced into more sin than the enemies of God, and because of. These kings, Jerusalem was filled with innocent blood. The chronicler writes, and the Lord would not forgive. It's not just that though. It's just not internationally. It's not just nationally. But even the religious life as well. That This level of corruption is flowing through the people of God. The Those who are supposed to be reflecting the light of God in the midst of them, the priest and those who work in the temple. What do they do? They take bribes. They take bribes and they oppress the poor. Eurasia, the priest, who was during the reign of King Ahaz, he actually goes up to Damascus, makes a copy of the pagan temple and some of their artifacts that they have there in Damascus, brings it back to Jerusalem pushes the stuff of God aside, and puts in the copy of what was seen in the pagan temple in Damascus, the enemies of God, those of who are enduring hell at this moment, and brings it into the house of God. And then, to make it worse, what do they do? Well, the king of Damascus comes up and makes an offering in the temple of God, at the pagan altar that was built by who? Who? Some godly priest. It's pathetic. Then even... It's not just that. You can keep going narrower and narrower. Even on a family level, there's a complete breakdown. There's a dereliction of fatherhood. You even see that women are brought to the point of eating their own children. There's no teaching of the God's law, of all of His goodness, all of His grace. That is not being taught from one generation to the next. How do you know? Well, uh, they find the temple, they find the law. During Josiah's reign, it's been gone for generations. They didn't even know that the law of God was missing. Why? Because they didn't care. So there's only one option then exile. He's not just going to completely wipe them out come and kill them all because of his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, to Solomon. And so in 605, the Babylonians come and they take charge. And then Judah becomes a vassal state of the Babylonians, which is why you see now the king's names begin to change uh, because Babylon says, no, you're ours. Here's your, actually, here's your name. And then they begin to rebel in 597. And the upper echelons of society are carried off. This is why you see Daniel. He's actually in the courts of the king in Babylon. That's why they bring off the social elites, all the academics. They bring them to Babylon to train them in their own ways. And then King... Zedekiah, he rebels against Babylon. So what happens to the Babylonians, they go they go past um, uh, the Israelites down into Egypt, and they actually suffer a couple of losses. They sit on the fringes of the kingdom. And so then Zedekiah goes, Oh, now's our chance. We're on the fringes of the kingdom. They've lost a couple battles. We're going to rebel. Horrible decision. Horrible decision. Now you have what is called the wiping of the dish. And so if they know, the Babylonians know, if there's any power left in Jerusalem, what are they going to do? They're going to rebel against us. So, 587, they begin building these siege works against Jerusalem. And in 586, it completely falls. They shut you in and the the people begin to starve. But in all of this, You must know that the steadfast love of God and the goodness of God is enduring forever. So the walls are breached in the king's house, and every other house is burned. And this is in the chronicler writes that they burned down the house of God. And Judah was led away into exile from its land. And in the midst of all of this, I hope you know that the goodness of God endures forever, that He was faithful. And so here they are living in exile for 70 years. They're exiled, they're carried away, and they're away then from this... What, this this is this temple where God would dwell with His people, and to be honest, that's some of you guys. Either you you don't care, or maybe you're bitter against God, whatever it might be. But you must know that in the midst of all of this, when you begin to look at your life and say, "God, how could you possibly be good? Don't you know that this has happened? Don't you? Weren't, didn't you see me get abused as a child?" And now you're going to tell me that your steadfast love endures forever? Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't you know that in the midst of all of our addictions, not not just drugs, whether it's status or pornography or body image or, you know, whatever it might be, whatever your addiction of choice is, that in the midst of this, The steadfast love of God endures forever. Why? Because you can never outrun the goodness of God. You can never go so far away. Babylon is not too far. Your sins are never too great to go beyond the goodness of God. To go beyond the steadfast love of God. He will call you and affectionately change your heart. And bring you and draw you to Himself. So that you who were an object who hated God will now come and delightfully worship in His holiness and His goodness. So that's what it looks like to be in exile. So after 70 years, God appoints this king, King Cyrus, who comes into power. And he's not like Pharaoh. Unlike holding the people of God, he lets the people of God go. And uh, rather than being plundered, he actually underwrites their expedition. And this building of the new temple. So in 537, here we are, you know, 1500 years. A little bit more. After the call of Abraham. They begin to lay the temple. And as you would imagine, there's a lot of pomp and there's circumstances going on. They're coming forward with their trumpets, you see in verse 10. And the Levites and the sons of Asaph, they're coming forth with their symbols. And all of this is happening. Not to celebrate all that they've done. Oh, we made it. We endured. We've did so good. No, they are, what are they doing? To praise the Lord. That is what they are doing. And why? Because there is much to praise him for, my brothers and sisters. So let's look at this. Four verse eleven. For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. So, just look at this first part: the goodness of God, that he is good. Uh, this word "tov" it's actually incredibly common—five hundred sometimes in the Old Testament. Very common, and you can use you be used to describe things like you can use uh, live to a good old age, as Abraham did. Uh, But there is only one who is good. There's other things that are described as being good. So you see in Psalm, or Isaiah 39 that the words of God brought through this prophet, they are good. Also the sacrifices of God in Psalm 54, the sacrifices of God towards God, they are good as well. You see that the love of God is good in Psalm 69. And then in Genesis 1, obviously the creation of God. It is regarded as being good. But in all of this, you can read through every instance of how this is used. There's only one person who is good. And that is God. And God alone. There's only God who is the stream of goodness. And there He is, right at the headwaters. So everything that we see in this world, that we regard as good, because God is the headwaters of it all, well then it's just a reflection of who He is. It's a reflection of His... So uh, the goodness of creation is a reflection of the Creator. The words of God being good in Isaiah 39 are a reflection that God Himself and what He says is good. The sacrifices are good. Why? Because they're made unto God. Uh, so think about it in this way. That, that God in His goodness, He Himself is the standard of goodness. There's not as though there's something else that He is conforming unto. No, He is the standard. So you think, uh, you can think of it this way. In, in the French countryside, there's a stone. That weighs one kilogram. How do we know it weighs one kilogram? Because that's the standard. So everything else is compared to this stone. Is it more? Is it less? I don't know. You compare it right to the source. Go right to that stone. In the same way, is this good or is it not? Well, then you compare it to God because He is good. He is the source and He is the standard of all goodness. And this is critical then, brothers and sisters, when we begin to doubt. God, are you good? We see the turmoil in our lives from broken relationships. But brothers and sisters, this is the whole point of reading Scripture. Is that we place ourselves under it. And that we see the the truth of who God is. And then use that light to shine it into our lives. And it's there that we see the goodness of God. Think of the alternative. What is the world trying to tell you? They're going to tell you that it's not God who is good. Don't you know He failed you so many times? But it's you! Congratulations! You are the good one. And, and admittedly, we have a, a horrific uh, church growth strategy um, in which we again and again and again come up here and tell you that this is not about you, right? The world's going to tell you this is all about you. You're fantastic and you're great. And then we come up here and say, no, this is not about you. We are here to declare the, the supremacy, the, the sovereignty, the glory, and the love of God alone. So all of that aside. So, how does the world know that we're good? They don't. They don't know our deepest thoughts. If they saw your deepest thoughts and desires, do you think they would tell you that you're good? No. They would be just as appalled, as appalled as you are at those hidden secrets. So as we continue in our sin unfettered and unchecked by the love of God, by the grace of God, this continues on in our lives. But when we're held to the standard that not that the world gives us, but by the standard that is given to us in scripture, by the standard of God alone, that we fall wickedly and horribly short. Which is why Jesus is, when he's talking to Nicodemus in the evening, in John 3, he tells them, truly, truly, I tell you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The world's gonna tell you, oh, you're, boy, you're fantastic. You're great. And Christ is telling you, no, you must be born again. The goodness that you have and all of your goodness will bring you nowhere but to a good, dark grave. You're helpless on your own apart from this goodness of God. So as he is the standard in James 1, we see that every good gift and every perfect gift is coming is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change because he does not change so then what's the outflow then of this goodness of God of him being the sense st- the standard and the source of all goodness and what's the outflow of all of this well it's that his steadfast love endures forever for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel and this, this, we're in a, uh, chesed, which is regarded, translated steadfast love is now how we render it. It's, the grammarians, they want you to know that it's, this is not um, an act of kindness towards someone that you don't really know. The steadfast love is not you giving out five dollars to the guy who's, who's begging for food on the On the side of the road. No, but it's the exchange of unwavering affection and love between two parties who know each other, who are in relationships, who you could say, who are in covenant with one another. And it's this love that bears and endures all things. And why does the love of God bear and endure all things? Well, think about it. If His character is unwavering, if His goodness is unchanging, the outflow of that, this love, will last forever and will endure forever. This doesn't make sense. That the exiles... Would hold back anything. This is why they are coming. And singing about this goodness. And the steadfast love of God. There is no greater anthem. Than we have. As brothers and sisters in Christ. About the goodness. And the great, great, enduring love of God. In the midst of all of their international failures. And trusting in other nations. And in the midst of their their national depravity. In which they would, their kings would lead the people in sacrificing their own children. In the midst of the religious breakdowns where the priests who had take this position of authority and use it and twist it to, to rule over the people rather than serving them. In the midst of the breakdown of the families when fathers are absent and mothers are eating their own children and the word of God is not shared within the home. In the midst of all of this, 70 years in exile in the midst of all of this. They are never forgotten. But God purifies them while they are in exile and brings this purified people back to now rebuild the temple. The, the temple, which is the center of who they are. We can't underestimate what is actually happening here in the temple. The temple is the, the center of basically all of their, their uh, political power, their economic power, their religious power, all of these realms of society. So it's like uh, New York, Washington, and LA are all, all the, the cultural centers is right there in the temple. So we can't underestimate the goodness of God of what is happening here. So imagine being a nameless, faceless, homeless man. Brought out of exile. And now by the grace of God, he is giving you back the center of who you are. The, the core of your identity is being given back to them. Which conversely, which is why we always focus on the centrality of the local church. The new temple. You guys. Being built together in a place where God will dwell. This is still, it has supplanted the temple as this premier place of importance for the people of God. So this great and enduring love towards Israel is, it's, it's evident. They sing of it because it's evident in every place. But it's brought most clearly to us through Christ. John 15. Christ says. A greater love has no one this. Than someone lay down his life. For his friends. And having loved his own. Who were in the world. He loved them. He loved them till the end. And this is love. John writes. In his epistle. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And how does He love us? How can we sing that His steadfast love endures forever? Well, because He sent His Son to be the propitiation, to, be, to take the punishment for our sins. It is there that the steadfast love of God The enduring love of God is fully displayed for all of you. You can look up and see it. See your Messiah hanging on the tree. And there you will see displayed the steadfast love of God. This tree, this cursed tree of the cross is now becoming the tree of life through his goodness. So there was whipping him And exposing, melting away his flesh. And exposing the blood and the bone. And there he is. We know that for he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. And The soldiers mock him and spit on him. But Christ knows and we know in the midst of that. For he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Through the crown of thorns and blood coming down on his face. For He is good. Father, I know You are good and Your steadfast love endures forever. As He is hanging upon the cross, being mocked even by other sinners. And those who He has come to save. It is true that for He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. Brothers and sisters... You must be born again to be born into this eternal life for God why, because God so loved the world, what did he do Well that he gave his only begotten son that what whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. You must be born again to be brought into this eternal love and grace of God, you must believe you must be born again. Look, look here. Go back to verse 11. What is the object of his affection? For he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Where? Towards Israel. Towards the people of God. Do not be found outside of the people of God. And never take it for granted that if you are in Christ, that you are the object of God's love. So all going back to all of his goodness flowing through his love is now being placed upon his people. The object of his deep, eternal, unchanging character and affection is being poured out upon his people. That is when you know you're home. So then what do we do? Well, it's quite easy. You believe in Him, and you praise Him. You must be abundantly clear here. Children, the faith of your parents is not enough. Husbands and wives, the faith of your spouse is never enough. That one prayer you prayed, and then kept on living as though you never cared that you prayed it two days earlier. That is not enough. Nothing is enough but believing and trusting in Christ and placing all of your faith in the finished work of God through Christ. So, okay, so we believe in Him. You must be born again. And then what do we do? Well, obviously we praise, we praise Him. It should be evidently clear that all that God is doing is eliciting this praise out of His people towards Him. So what do we do? Well, we praise God when we wake and we sing out, oh, his, his steadfast love endures forever. And we praise God for every little bit of food that we eat and we know that the steadfast love of God endures forever. And daily I I pray and we thank God for you guys. It is through you that the steadfast love of God is being displayed forever. And you praise God in your prayers. And you praise God when you go down to sleep. And you praise God when you are lying there and drawing your final breath. And praising Him. As your body is failing. And you know. Oh God, You are good and Your steadfast love endures forever. For I know that in the moments after that, when You are drawn into the true eternal temple, to the throne room of God, that You will be praising Him. Praise be to God. For He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we... It's so easy to feel as though we are in exile. Draw our hearts to worship you. And to adore you. To see that you are doing a good work here. In this church, God. That you are laying the foundation with your son himself as the chief cornerstone. So God, we ask that you would let us see that your steadfast love endures forever. As we come and partake of this meal celebrating the work of your Son, let us always be reminded that you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. Amen.